Uh, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 16. So I'd like you, hopefully everybody's got a Bible with them. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. We looked at the first 11 verses last Sunday. We will look at the second part of that chapter uh, today. And there's a lot of other information there too. Some we're going to pick up a little bit later, but we'll highlight on uh, actually a word that our president used just a couple of days ago. Does anybody remember that, that long A word, Armageddon? So in some uh, comments he made, he was talking about nuclear Armageddon. And so all of a sudden people are talking about Armageddon again. Where does that come from? The book of Revelation. So here we have it in NASB version, Harmageddon, and we'll talk about that and what that means. But um, really, most of that information slides into another chapter, chapter 19, coming up here in the book of Revelation. But we'll look at that. So turn in your Bible, 16, beginning at verse 12. And I'd like you to stand, please, if you can, as we read God's word together. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12, let's look at it together. And the sixth angel, so remember there were seven, poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And we don't know how many they are or exactly what countries they're coming from, but we certainly see the military buildup of many strong countries in the East now. Remember, this was all prophesied about uh, thousands of years ago. This could be as many as 200 million, and that could be based back on a reference in Revelation chapter 9, verse 14. Kings from the East. And I saw coming up, this gets very graphic, so put on your seatbelts here. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they are gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. You may be seated. Lord God, as we look at these things together, it's amazing. It's, it's hard to really grasp in the pictures in our minds the words that describe so many graphic things, so many horrific things, things, as you've said, that have never occurred before, like this earthquake, these judgments, the, the wrath, the hailstones. And yet, Lord, we know that that's all in the context of it is finished, it is done. 
almost a link back to the cross where Jesus said, it is finished. We know you have a perfect timetable. And Lord God, we, we worship you this morning as we read your word, that you are the great God Almighty, that you are the great sovereign of the universe. And Lord, just help us as we read this, some of it which is difficult to grasp, to just be emboldened and to just realize how great you are. Be our teacher this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I ask this question, I'm going to start this morning with a question, and I think I already know the answer for most of you. Have you ever picked up something that is a little too heavy? And when I say a little too heavy, I really mean too heavy. And then suddenly you regret it. You've all done it. But remember what it feels like. Remember the, the kind of the, the awkward position then that you are in. Your fingers are in a tight grip, but they're slowly sliding from the right position. Your forearm muscles all of a sudden squeeze in to compensate, but now the whole object becomes off balance. Your back feels like it's going to snap any moment. And suddenly it's clear what the, that little two-person lift logo on the carton meant. Now, just setting it down might make logical sense to an objective observer, but stubbornness propels you. Just 50 more feet. Do you get it there in one piece? Do you get it there at all? Do you get it there in one trip? But as we've all had that kind of experience probably multiple times, the weight has made its impression Unfortunately, we relearn that over and over again. Some things are just more than you and I can really carry. But too heavy is not limited, as we well know, to an overstuffed moving box filled with textbooks or bulky, massive window AC units. Other heavies may not shed their burden so quickly. Heavies like sudden bad news or like that dreaded call from the doctor or like the crush in our lives of some kind of relationship that's just not working out or like ongoing financial stress or like increasing, increasing anti-Christian hostility, much of what we were just talking about. Or like the, the fractured state of our nation or like a stinging fear and anxiety, a worry that, that you just can't seem to shake out of your life. All of them are heavy, sometimes too heavy, maybe most of the time extremely heavy. Well, what does all this have to do with the verses that we've just read together, the verses in front of you from Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 21? All 10 verses carry weight. And some of those verses, as I've already mentioned, seem beyond our ability to fully grasp. An anti-God world gone totally out of control, gone totally mad. Demons influencing every nation on earth. An earthquake like there's never before been since the creation of Adam and Eve. 
worldwide destruction, even hailstones weighing upwards of 100 pounds, if you could imagine. With all that in mind, I want you now to home in on something in verse 14, will you? So if you look at your Bibles, Revelation 16, hopefully you've got the pages open there. Now, zoom in on verse 14, and I want you to look at the last phrase. It might not be the last phrase, depending on what interpretation of the Bible you have or what version of the Bible that you have. But I want you to look at the description of God. So we're talking about this war, right? War of the, of the great day of God. But then how does it refer to him? God the Almighty. I want you to park there just for a moment. For God the Almighty. So we've got all this crazy stuff going on at the end of chapter four, or 16. All these things that have never happened before on the earth. Things that you and I, fortunately, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we will be raptured as the church before this time. But these things are still going to be a reality. But in the midst of that, right in the middle of it, is God all-powerful or God omnipotent. What does that really mean? God Almighty, God all-power, God the omnipotent. By the way, omnipotent means all-powerful. It means his strength, God's strength, is unlimited. God's strength is inexhaustible. God has the sovereign power and the ability to do anything. One author adds this, I like this, since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. Did you catch that? That's who God Almighty or all-powerful is. While our finite minds can barely grasp this kind of strength, what we do know is that means that in his sovereignty, in his might, he always wins. He always wins. Look ahead to chapter 19 where I said we're going to kind of fill in the holes here of this battle of Armageddon to the sixth verse. Chapter 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. God Wins, And I want you to keep this in mind as, as we wrestle here on earth in time and space with so many of these heavy uncertainties and, and difficulties and, and insecurities that seem too crushing. And I want you to consider that 
that we belong to the same God that we read about here in Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 19. And as we get to the end of this book, the last three chapters that are just phenomenal that show us how this all ends. This is our same God. God almighty, God all-powerful, God omnipotent that can do anything. Is there anything our God cannot do? The Old Testament asks us many, many times. It's a rhetorical question because we know the answer. So I want us to look at this a little bit different, the end of this chapter. I want us to consider three significant truths here that highlight his weightlifting ability that show us that he is indeed our infinite, almighty, all-powerful God. So let's look at weightlifter number one. These are very significant and very encouraging in the midst of all this craziness that's going on at the end of the chapter. Number one, he always has the upper hand. He always has the upper hand. The truth here is that the world's power is both limited and fueled by satanic deception. Look at verse 12 through 14 again. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, always shows up in the Bible, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for as we just mentioned the war of the great great day of God the almighty he always has the upper hand what we're seeing unfolding here in these three verses, beginning in verse 12, is bold judgment number six. So remember, these are the final in a cycle of judgments. These are the third in that cycle. So this is judgment number six. There's a total of seven in each one of the cycles. It's an interesting scene, isn't it? The beginning of this. What is going on here? Who's in control here? Think about this, because it doesn't look like wrath or judgment from earth's perspective, right? An obstacle is removed. God is doing something that could be viewed from a non-eternal and earthbound perspective as something positive. He's removing an obstacle. He's drying up the river. Now we have complete access to battle against God. Why would God do this? We'll look at verse 4. Or verse 14, I'm sorry. Why would he do this? It's all deception. They're deceived into thinking somehow that they are taking the place of God. Somehow that their power is not limited. And that they will be successful in their battle against God. But God always has the holy upper hand. Here's the truth here. God allows the world to flaunt its strength so that he can execute his unlimited power. They fall for it. 
because, according to verses 13 and 14, they are deceived by the evil threeism. I'm not going to say trinity, by the evil threeism using words, talks about their mouths, messenger frogs, convince all the nations by signs to gather in place for one reason, to battle against God. How do you think that's going to go? Isn't this the root of all man's troubles? To battle against God. Somehow we can usurp the power of God. If we get enough people together, possibly here, if we're we're reading the references right in Revelation, upwards of 200 million, an army of 200 million in a battle against God. I went back to the Old Testament, a chapter I would encourage you to revisit all of the time. And I'd like to share a fair amount of verses with you. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but back to Isaiah chapter 40. Again, asking the question, how does God view all of this? Beginning in verse 12, we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Again, all rhetorical questions. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness Will you compare him? I'm going to drop down to verse 22. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He, it is, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth, their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. And then I just want to share two more verses from the next chapter. That would be Isaiah 41. Listen to this. As the Lord God speaks to you from his living word, with all of that in mind from God's perspective, how does he view the world's power? How does that connect to you and I? Verse 10 in Isaiah 41, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That upper hand of God holds you in Christ. Verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, for I will help you. Is anything too heavy for our God? Is anything in your life too heavy for our God? Think about it. And you try to name one thing that is beyond God's ability to deal with. You see his perspective on the nations, the millions that are gathered together. And this is in future tense. So we're talking about all kinds of high-tech weapons of warfare. We're not talking about Old Testament warfare. We're talking about future. And you know already that there's all kinds of crazy things being developed with with GPS and and satellite and all kinds of stuff. I was just reading about some warfare that's uh, going on right now in Ukraine that the United States developed in 2015. Jeffrey has the article back there. can only imagine what they're going to invent and all of that to God is nothing he said he regards them as dust so the things that come into our lives the the heavies from living in a broken world the heavies from living under a world that is still under the curse is anything beyond his ability You go back and read Isaiah 40. Read the whole chapter. Go back and read Isaiah 41. And just kind of settle there. And whatever those heavies are in your life, just kind of take them and place them on Isaiah 40 and 41. And say, God, I don't see how how this is going to happen, but I see you as the great weightlifter. Let's look at The second weightlifter principle. He always has the sure hand. He always has the sure hand. Back in Revelation chapter 16, suddenly we have a very strange verse that that just kind of pops in. It's like we're reading a narrative and then a verse goes, boom. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. It's almost an echoing of Jesus' own words. It's like Jesus all of a sudden pops into the picture. We're reading all this discouraging stuff and the armies of the world are are in a position to war against the Almighty. And it's like Jesus pops in and says, wait a minute. With an echoing similar to Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 43. As if he senses the heaviness weighing on his children, trying to take in this crazy scene. And it's almost like he's saying, don't be anxious. I have this. It'll all work out according to my plan, not yours. Because those of you who keep his garments, those of you who have the garment of my righteousness are 100% secure in me. This is a warning, yes, and we see this other places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24, Philippians, or 2 
Peter chapter 3 verse 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 4, or 5 uh, verses 2 and 4, but it's also an encouragement not to lose sight of this biblical reality to persevere because we are his no matter how bad things may look. Reminded of Jesus' words back in the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are there any of Jesus' sheep in this room? And I give eternal life to them. Do you hear what he's saying? And they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you recognize that? It's as if he's he's reminding us, those of us who are reading this, who who will be raptured, the raptured church, that, that you're safe and secure as long as you're wearing that robe of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ himself. We see all the martyrs in heaven that went through the tribulation period, who were killed, who were murdered for their faith, which we're beginning to see now on the horizon as this anti-Christian hostility becomes bolder and bolder even in our own land. That these martyrs as well are secure. Their robes are red. They have been washed in the blood of Jesus. They are totally secure in the sacrifice of Jesus when he said, it is finished, it is finished. Remember, our enemy is an enemy of deception. We see it here as he sends out these evil spirits to somehow convince the leaders of every nation on earth, not some nations, not a dozen nations, not a few select nations, but every nation on earth. That's how deceptive he is, to gather together and war against God himself. That's how deceptive he is, but that Satanic being can never, ever, ever take eternity from you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He can get you to doubt it. He can get you to worry. He can get you to focus on the heaviness of life. But he can never take what Jesus has given you. The third weightlifting principle that we see here is he always has the final hand. He always has the final hand. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. And this is interesting. I just want to share with you a, a few facts about this because there's, we don't know everything about it. There's always just a little bit of a mystery how all this is going to come together or exactly where it's going to be. But har comes from the Hebrew word that means mount. Megiddo comes from the actual physical city that is called Megiddo. It's a city on the west side of, in, the, in Israel, it's called the Valley of Jezreel, which means God sows. It's the, literally the breadbasket, the green part of Israel. It's a valley 14 miles wide, 67 miles long, which is roughly about 1,000 square miles or so. So how would the 200 million 
fit there? Well, actually, remember that we read that uh, it goes on for, what was that, 20, 21 miles or 22 miles or something. We read earlier in the book of Revelation the blood that came up to the uh, horse's hooves or, or um, how far the horse's chest. And so this has always been a scene of battles. Bar Barak and Deborah fought the Canaanites here in Judges chapter 4. This same valley, Gideon fought the Midianites here in Judges 6 and 7. Saul and Josiah both died here. Megiddo was known as the great crossroads city. So from east and west, south and north, this was a place where everybody had to go through Megiddo. In fact, in 1450 BC, the Egyptian king Thuthmos III said, the one who conquers Megiddo conquers a thousand cities. Napoleon said that he believed out of all the battlefields that he fought on, this was the most natural, best battlefield there was. And he routed the Ottomans here in 1799. The cities here, just to show the number of conflicts that were here, this cities have been rebuilt 15 times. Megiddo itself, the cities in the valley, Megiddo itself has been rebuilt 20 times. In David's day, it was rebuilt for the 16th time already. Archaeologists have found the various layers of these different cities. But here's the interesting thing. With all that in mind, a lot of little facts. Almost 10 miles from Megiddo is another town that you may be familiar with called Nazareth. When Jesus was growing up, as a teenager, as a young man, he could see Megiddo. Jesus knew that there was going to be an end to all of this. Remember, he didn't know the day or the time. Only the Father knew the day or the time. But he knew there was going to be an Armageddon. He knew that Megiddo was going to be the place of a tremendous battle, the, the Valley of Jezreel. And he was born, and he died, and he said it is finished to secure eternity for you and I. Fascinating that as a young man, Jesus would look over this same place that thousands of years later would be the gathering spot of all of those who said, no, it's not over. It's not finished. It's going to be finished when we get rid of God. And it will never happen. God always has the final hand. We see that in the final description when he says it is done, that's one word in the Greek language. It's a very intense, unusual word. And it means something that was prophesied or talked about way in the past is now being fulfilled. God promised, according to his timetable, that there was going to be an end to all this rebellion. That there was going to be a time when his wrath would be final. And it would be over. And Jesus Christ would come again. And there, he would have that millennial reign on earth. And then and there would be the new heavens and the new earth. And you and I would enjoy life with him forever and ever and ever.
There would be an end to all of this. It is finished. It is done. And we see all of these different things. I like the contrast. The word great is used multiple times in this chapter. And I think it's interesting that we have the great earthquake, but then in verse 19, we have the great city and Babylon was great. It's like great versus great. Who's going to win? The great earthquake. Who causes the great earthquake? Who is behind the rumbling of the earth? You ever been through an earthquake? How many of you felt that one the other day? Few of you. Okay. I like there's an earthquake in Oregon. I mean, I grew up in Southern California where, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. There were some pretty bad ones. We went through a bad one right after we got married. But this is going to be the great earthquake. From the almighty God whose power is what? Unlimited. Right? He created all this. He can do whatever he wants with it. Against Babylon the great. Babylon the great represents the greatest that man has to offer in his limited power capacity. All of man's great achievements. We hear about them every day. Right? All the things that man can do. Man is so wonderful. Man is so full of himself. Man can, can create all of these things where he doesn't need God anymore. He's completely self-sufficient. Great versus great. What happens? The city splits into three and it's gone. And then we have the hailstones that weigh almost 100 pounds. You ever heard of such a thing? I mean, we talk about on occasion like golf ball sized hailstones and we're like, wow, takes out every car, takes out every window, does all kinds of damage. Hundred pound hailstone. And what's the end result? If you weren't convinced yet, and we talked about this last Sunday, that man, wow, man should be given another chance. That's not really fair. The wrath of God. Okay, we'll throw hundred pound hailstones on it. And then he'll say, okay, I give up. Right? He should. What does he say? He curses God. He blasphemes God. God has the final hand. God has the final word. There is going to be a day when the weight and the burdens of all of the things that you and I face, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we live in a fallen world, will change. That day will certainly be when we are taken to heaven. That day will certainly be when the rapture comes. But there's also a day, we'll give you a sneak preview here, of chapter 22, the last chapter in the book of Revelation. Something phenomenal takes place in chapter 22. Verse 3 says, And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. No more curse means no more weight of life. The curse from Genesis chapter 3 will finally be lifted. Not now. You and I live under the curse. We know the joy of Jesus. We have security in Jesus Christ. We know the certainty of eternity, but we still live in a world that is under the curse. We still have to pull weeds. 
thanks to great, 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 great grandfather Adam. We still deal with sickness and, and pain and bad news and all kinds of trials and different things that we go through. But who is greater than all of that? Who is the great weightlifter? Have you ever been, let's revisit back to that terrible thing that you picked up that was way too heavy. And it's about ready to slide out of your grip and you know it's too heavy and you know you should set it down and then suddenly out of the corner of your eye, a friend or a family member or your spouse or somebody comes up and says, whoa, 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 wait, let me help you with that. What happens? All of a sudden, sometimes if that thing is so heavy, have you ever had that experience where somebody takes something heavy from you and your arms kind of go, like after they take it, they almost like lift and you're going, what is that? That's what God does. God is our supreme, holy weight lifter. Is he capable? Is he able? I think you know the answer to that. If you've walked into this room this morning and you're carrying a burden or some type of particular weight in your life, I want you to take that weight right now and I want you to put it alongside the God that we've been talking about. And I want you to ask the question, is he able to take care of that? God Almighty. Look at that scene going on again in Revelation chapter 16. It's crazy. The world, millions and millions of people, armies, they hate him. I mean, we're just getting a taste of it. Some of this opposition that we're getting. I mean, this is going to be like hyper overdrive. Everybody is going to be in opposition to God. And yet in the midst of that, he is the almighty. Because he's always the almighty. He's never been less than the almighty. And those burdens and those weights that you and I have in our lives, he is still the almighty. And what did he say? I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for yourself. Thank you, God, that you remind us that you are almighty. You are all-powerful. There is nothing that you cannot do. There is nothing that you cannot handle. Lord, we praise you for that. Take our burdens this morning. Take the weight off us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. We pray in his name. Amen.